Now Alistair is going to read to us from the Word of God. The reading is uh, taken from Psalm 119, verses 17 to 24, that's Psalm 119. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counsellors. Well, it's a great delight to have with us tonight the Reverend Dr. William Philip, who is the minister of the large city church, the Tron in Glasgow. I thought it's best if he just tells you a little bit about the church he's at and the work he does and his concerns before he lectures to us. Well, it's, uh, it's lovely to be here with you this evening. Thank you for the invitation. And uh, what can I tell you? I am... Uh, as John says, minister of St. George's Tron Church in Glasgow. I've been there for seven years. Uh, it's a church right in the city centre of Glasgow with a long evangelical uh, history. Um, it's uh, still a part of the Church of Scotland, but as many of you will know, we're in the throes of major traumas in the Church of Scotland at the moment, and uh, we are now in a position where we are in severely impaired fellowship with our denomination and are battling through the various issues that that involves, um, seeking to maintain our gospel ministry and our congregation as we go on, but in uh, a very changed relationship from the denomination. So we'd value your prayers for that. We're in the middle of very stressful times and uh, it's, it's not at all easy uh, at the moment. I've been ministering there for seven years, as I said. Before that, I was uh, five years in London, where I was director of ministry at the Proclamation Trust, which some of you will have heard of, uh, seeking to train people in preaching uh, biblical ministry. Uh, prior to that, I was assistant minister in a parish in Aberdeen. And uh, prior to that, before my uh, ministry training, I worked uh, as a medical doctor, uh, mostly in Aberdeen, but in a number of other, other places as well. During my, my student days, I had the privilege of being uh, part of the fellowship of Gilcomson South Church in Aberdeen, where William Still was the, uh, the minister. Uh, he was very formative in, in my life. In fact, I'm named after him because he was my uh, godfather, if you like. He, during his time at university, uh, became friends with my father. Uh, my father was quite a bit younger than him, but uh, William Still was a late, uh, a mature student. But they became friends just prior to the war, and uh, it was through him that my father was brought to faith, and uh, then the two of them shared ministry together for many, many years, my father in Edinburgh and uh, William still in Aberdeen. But I went as a student to Aberdeen and was uh, part of his church and uh, learned a great deal from him and uh, was assistant with him for a year uh, in his last year of ministry there before I, I went off to another church. So uh, I've done the rounds from the east of Scotland to the northeast of Scotland to the southeast of England and now I am a missionary to the west of Scotland 
which is a very different culture indeed from the East. And as the Glaswegians say, the only good thing to come out of Edinburgh is the train to Glasgow. So I got on it, and uh, I've been there for these last seven years. And uh, we, like any city centre nowadays, we're full of people from all over the world. Um, and our church is beginning to reflect that. We had a census a couple of Sundays ago looking at the the attendance on Sunday morning and the, the age range and the, um, uh, where people were from and about um, 15% of our congregation are non-Europeans at the moment, lots of Chinese, Indians. We have a great influx of uh, Iranians over recent years. We've got about 20 Iranians, most of whom are, are or have been asylum seekers. Some have fled the country having become Christian. Some have become Christian since they've been with us. Um, so Glasgow's a much more cosmopolitan place uh, than it used to be, and I, I guess perhaps Newcastle is as well. Anywhere that has uh, universities and colleges now in our country are, are, are like that. So we have a, a, a great mix of people from all different walks of life and from all different church and denominational backgrounds, uh, uh, as well as people who have just come to faith and know nothing about denominations or church backgrounds. and. They're wonderful people to have because they have no baggage and no uh, traditions and no nothing and things are just the way they are, which is terrific. But uh, here I, I've been given the, uh, the title, God's Law, the Struggling Believer's Gracious and Trusty Friend. And um, that, that might seem rather an odd title to many today. Um, Many people, I think, many Christians uh, do ask the question, well, why, why do we need to bother with the Old Testament law at all today? Because surely we're New Testament Christians. And doesn't the New Testament tell us that we're no longer under law, but we're under grace? Uh, isn't that what Paul says in Romans chapter 6? Now, I've been asked that question many times. Perhaps you have. Perhaps you've asked it. And, of course, Paul does say that, doesn't he? But he immediately goes on to explain that... Being under grace means being a slave, being a slave to righteousness, being a slave of God, being someone whose delight is in the law of God in our innermost beings. So that for Paul, the very definition of a Christian believer, a true believer, is somebody who genuinely confesses with real feeling the things that the psalmist expresses in the psalm that we just read. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. The definition of a real Christian is somebody who prays very sincerely, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things out of your law. Now, in a sense, that really sums up everything we need to say about why the law is the great friend of the believer. But I want to try and spend some time tonight on on some issues that um, may help us get clarity about just how we should read and understand the Old Testament law as Christians today. And first, I think it is helpful to define our terms Law, of course, can be used in many different ways in, uh, in the Scriptures and uh, in our own parlance. And uh, that can lead to a fair bit of confusion, can't it? Because uh, sometimes we're not quite sure what it is we're talking about. Are we using the word positively or negatively? Um, it's quite common to take the word law, as I mentioned it, um, opposing law and grace, as it were. Uh, often people do that in shorthand, and what they're meaning is that law is a synonym, really, for works religion, which is opposed to grace, as indeed it is. But actually, it's, it's rarely in the Bible that the word law is used in exactly that way. It is used that way sometimes, particularly in the, 
the context of specific arguments uh, where Paul is in the middle of a polemic, for example, in, in the letter to the Galatians. Um, but we have to be careful it, where he is speaking in those terms. He is opposing not law and grace, but the works of the law uh, and God's grace. Um, Paul, even in Galatians, is very con- concerned that uh, the people of God would go on obeying the truth instead of obeying false uh, Teaching. He's very concerned that they do fulfill the law, but that they do so through serving one another in love and, and by walking in the Spirit, but not by abandoning themselves to lawlessness, which is what he says the great danger is. But mostly when the Bible, and the New Testament also, uh, as well as the Old Testament, mostly when it refers to the law, it means uh, the Torah, the uh, instruction of God. The law of God. And more specifically, that which is found in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the uh, the books of Moses. And uh, so most references to the law are talking about those first five books of the Bible and the instruction in them. And of course, in those first five books of the Bible, we have not just one genre. uh, We have a whole number of different things. Some of it is narrative. Some of it is, is promise. Some of it's prophecy as well as the statutes and the rules uh, that Moses teaches. So it's helpful to remember that's really largely what we're thinking about when the Bible talks about the law of God, the instruction of God, and particularly that given uh, by Moses. But why should New Testament Christians bother too much with the law that Moses gave uh, to ancient Israel? Well, for one thing, the... uh, Pentateuch, the Torah, really is the text upon which the whole of the rest of the Bible expands. Uh, It contains the great events, the great formative acts of God that uh, the whole of the rest of the Old Testament unfolds and expounds. In a sense, it's the very foundation of the whole story of redemption. And that's why the New Testament is very plain when Paul says, these things were written for us. Uh, We all know, 2 Timothy 3, that all Scripture is uh, useful for our rebuke, for instruction, for training in righteousness. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, very explicitly, these things, and he's referring to Old Testament texts there in the Pentateuch, these things are written for our instruction, he says, upon whom the ends of the ages have come, the fulfillment of the times. He says the same thing in, in Romans 15, that uh, the scriptures are for us, that through the encouragement of the scriptures, we, the New Testament people of God, might have hope. And perhaps above all, the Lord Jesus himself said, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, but to fulfill them. So not one jot or tittle will pass away. And it's he who does these things and teaches these commands who will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, whoever loves me, keeps my commandments. Why? Well, because as the Apostle John explains in his first letter, sin is lawlessness. But love for God, by contrast, is keeping God's commandments. So, of course, the blessing of the new covenant that was promised by the prophets is indeed that God's law, his true instruction, will be written on our hearts by the Spirit. So clear in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Galatians 5 and 6 and Romans 8 and many other places reaffirm that to us. So clearly the Old Testament law, including the detailed teaching, for example, in the book of Deuteronomy, 
It mustn't be neglected today because it was written for us. Even as we live now in the end of the ages, in the the age of the Spirit, as the New Testament church. It's written for us, so it must be important for us. Stands to reason. But of course, it's not always the easiest thing, is it, to work out how exactly we're to understand and teach the Old Testament law today. There have always been problems in uh, teaching and applying the law. It was John Newton who said that ignorance of the nature and design of the law are at the bottom of most religious mistakes. And uh, one of the Puritans, Samuel Bolton, uh, said that uh, how we approach the law of God involves the greatest knots in the practical part of divinity. And that just reminds us, doesn't it, that, that biblical theology is not easy in the sense of being elementary. And many serious and godly Bible students have gone before us and have wrestled with these things and have a great deal to teach us. And uh, we need to listen. We need to learn from the past, not just jettison the past. Because unorthodoxy and error has crept into the church many, many times. And very often it's just the same patterns, isn't it, that arise again and again, but just in different guises in uh, different ages. And we also will be likely to fall into exactly these same problems if we too are ignorant of the past, if we don't look back and learn. Ignorance of church history is one of the greatest changes in the contemporary church, I think. Uh, You need to go back to the very earliest century, second century, and uh, the heretic called Marcion was somebody who led many people astray. Now, Marcion was a, a very able man, a very earnest man, But uh, he drove a great wedge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Eventually he was declared a heretic and cast out of the church, formed his own church, the Marcionite church. And uh, interestingly, Marcion regarded Paul's letter to the Galatians as the key to understanding uh, the whole of the relationship between the Old and New Testament. And so he reckoned that Paul had a very negative view of the law. And so he also took that very negative view, as he understood it, And he tried to separate everything that was tinged by law from everything that was the pure gospel. And what he was left with was, in fact, a Bible that cut out the whole of the Old Testament and nearly all of the New Testament, too. All that was left was Luke's gospel and Paul's letters. And uh, that, for Marcion, was the only part of the Bible that you could really trust. Now, he made two fairly fundamental errors. The first was... Uh, He didn't understand Galatians, for a start. He didn't understand that Paul in that letter is not arguing between grace and law, opposing those two things. He's opposing grace alone for salvation, with grace plus the works of the law, the works of Mosaic religion. And secondly, his mistake was that he fixated on that and simply ignored or got rid of other parts of Scripture that in any way didn't agree with his thesis. So he just didn't do justice uh, to the Scriptures. Nevertheless, today, I would suggest that there are quite a lot of Marcionite tendencies around, even in the evangelical church. Uh, I've been interested to find that uh, many people likewise seem to take Galatians as the touchstone for the way to interpret the whole of the rest of the the relationship between the Old and the New Testament. Uh, Often, people likewise are very impatient with church history and with theology in the past. They They want to jettison these things and say, well, look, let's just us get back to the Bible and work out the biblical pattern. Let's not think about what other theologians have said. 
Uh, there's something right about that, but there's something very wrong as well, isn't there? Because merely to react against the traditional view or the traditions of Reformed orthodoxy uh, and assume that you're going to have a more biblical approach, well, it's a pretty arrogant way of looking at things, really, isn't it? Um, there's quite an assault today in many, many circles, evangelical circles uh, as well, on the traditional way that the Reformed confessions, for example, have dealt with uh, the law of God. In particular, uh, the traditional threefold division, as it's called, of the law. Traditionally, theologians have uh, divided the law into the moral law, the civil law, uh, and the ceremonial law. Um, uh, I'm sure you're, uh, you're aware of that. But uh, it's often said today, well, that's an unbiblical way to categorize things. Um, these are, these are philosophical categories that uh, came from the medieval church. Uh, and really, the medieval scholastic thought just kind of spilled over into the Reformation unquestioned. Uh, people say the Bible doesn't speak like that. The, the, the law is a unity. And so we mustn't use non-biblical terms like that to, uh, to do our theology. I think it is a good thing, isn't it, to question received wisdom uh, and especially to examine these assumptions by the Bible and the Bible text itself. But we do need to be careful, don't we, just to make these sweeping uh, assumptions. Now, there are lots of terms that are not strictly biblical in that they don't appear in the Bible, but nevertheless, they do describe a great deal of biblical truth. It could be very easily said, couldn't it, that the term Trinity is not a biblical term. And people do argue that, of course. And uh, they go down the road of becoming Unitarians, like the Jehovah's Witnesses and so on. I've heard people say, well, providence, the providence of God, that's not a biblical term at all. And pretty shortly, you go down that road, you end up in the camp of, uh, of open theism. You could say the same thing about substitutionary atonement, or penal substitution, or verbal inspiration. None of these things are biblical terms, if what you mean is these words appearing in the Bible text. But just because terms are not used themselves in the Bible doesn't mean that uh, the concepts that they describe and articulate are not wholly biblical. So yes, it's, it's right that we should be, as biblical Christians, skeptical to a degree. It's right that we have a, a particular desire to focus on the Bible, not just what somebody else says about the Bible. But um, let's not imbibe too much of the ethos of uh, Tony Blair's Britain. Do you remember? He wanted to just shove aside all the forces of conservatism. Anything, in other words, that's in the past uh, is wrong. Yeah, we need to be careful. Not all those in our Christian path have been wrong, but there's an immense corpus of wisdom and of truth from our forebears from godly people who have loved the Scriptures and known the Scriptures, in a sense, far more than most contemporary Christians love or know their Scriptures. So we do need to have some humility as we think about these things. We need to be neither uncritical nor overcritical, I think, of received orthodoxy. And of course, we must let the Scriptures themselves always take the lead. So I want us to turn to the text of Scripture this evening, and I hope you can get your hands on a Bible somewhere, because I do want us to see clearly what the Bible itself, and indeed the law itself, says about itself, and about the distinctions that there clearly are in the law of God. 
I wonder if you'd turn with me, first of all, to the text of Deuteronomy. We're going to look at Deuteronomy briefly and then at Exodus. And if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 4 and 5, I think we'll see some helpful things there. It's strikingly clear in the text of Deuteronomy itself that the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, is absolutely unique. It has complete supremacy uh, in this book. Gordon McConville in his commentary says, the whole book is organized around it, the Decalogue. And essentially the heart of the book of Deuteronomy, which is from chapter 5 right through to chapter 26, the heart of the book is what you might call a dual revelation. That is, there is the Decalogue and there is everything else which is an exposition and an expansion of the Decalogue. Uh, in Deuteronomy, we're 40 years after the, uh, the Exodus. Uh, uh, the people are on the brink of the land. And Moses is looking back and rehearsing again everything that was, was uh, previously recorded for us in Exodus chapter 20. If you look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 12 and 13, you see that uh, Moses says that the Lord spoke there at Sinai and he declared to you his covenant That is, the Ten Commandments, literally the Ten Words. That's the first thing. God spoke and declared his covenant, the Ten Words. But look at verse 14. And, says Moses, and the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you the statutes and rules that you are to do in the land. God spoke his Ten Words, and then God told Moses to teach the people all the statutes and rules. Look over to chapter 5 and verse 22. Again, we've got this dual revelation. Verse 22, these ten words that God himself spoke to all Israel, and God himself wrote them on the ten tablets. All God speaking and writing. Then look down to verse 31. And when the people had returned to their tents, we see Moses the mediator staying to hear from God. He hears from God the whole commandment. That is, the specific exposition of all the laws and the statutes that Moses is to then teach to the children of Israel for their life in the land of Israel. And if you look at chapter 6, it begins verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules your Lord commanded me to teach to you, which you may do in the land. And the whole of the rest of the chapters, right up to chapter 26, contains that teaching. But what you see is a clear dual revelation. God speaks the ten words, his covenant, nothing more. And then Moses, the mediator of this covenant administration, receives and then expands and expands in detail to the people what this means for them in every aspect of their life in the land of promise. A revelation in two distinct parts but nevertheless, of course, bound together as one historically in one great event. Look back now to the book of Exodus, and we'll see the same thing. If you look to Exodus chapter 20, you'll see the same thing very, very clearly. Exodus 20, verses 1 to 17, we have the Decalogue, God speaking his words directly to all of Israel. And then at verse 21... We read that the people stood afar off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And uh, from here, right through to the end of chapter 23, God speaks to Moses 
the exposition of the Decalogue that he's to teach the people in the land. These, uh, these chapters are often called the Book of the Covenant. It's the kernel which is expanded out greatly in these central chapters of, uh, of Deuteronomy. It's all civil matters, family matters, charitable laws, criminal laws, uh, and so on. A few cultic things, but nothing, nothing yet about sacrifices or the tabernacle or anything like that. So God's word, the Decalogue, that he speaks and writes, the mediated word that he gives to Moses that Moses is to teach, and then, chapter 24 of Exodus, you have uh, the validation and the confirmation of God's covenant with his people. After they've heard all God's words, after they've been taught Moses' explanation, the people bind themselves to the Lord. Verse 7. All that the Lord has spoken, they say, we will do. And that bond is sealed in blood as the blood is sprinkled on the people. And then, only after this, only after this binding covenant ceremony, uh, do we have the rest of Exodus from chapter 25 right on to the end, which is all then about the cultic and the ceremonial laws relating to the tabernacle and to the priesthood. So notice this same dual revelation, uh, God's direct words and then uh, Moses' mediated words uh, to the people. But then in Exodus, what we have is a further distinction and indeed uh, evidence of a clear priority that is evident between, on the one hand, the Decalogue and its exposition for the people for life in the land, and then these cultic and ceremonial matters that come on the other side of the covenant uh, ceremony. So Exodus chapter 25, right through the end of Exodus and all the way through the book of Leviticus is, well, it's essentially the priest's handbook. Uh, it's all to do with the ceremonial and the tabernacle uh, and the sacrifices that are to be offered uh, therein. Notice it comes immediately after the ratification of the covenant, immediately after the pledge of God's people that they will be obedient and loyal and follow their Lord. Now that's very striking, isn't it? That immediately after this covenant loyalty and this pledge of obedience... Nevertheless, comes a whole raft of legislation all about the need for sacrifices for forgiveness of sins. There's an immediate recognition, isn't there, that a provision for sin is necessary, even for an obedient people, even for a loyal people who have pledged themselves to the Lord to trust and obey. So clearly, the Old Testament law itself was never thought to be something that you could somehow keep perfectly as though you would earn merit as though it was a set of rules that would make you righteous. Of course it wasn't. Immediately, there was uh, the need acknowledged for forgiveness of sin. No question of keeping the law in order to earn righteousness. That was the error of Israel in the main, of course, wasn't it? Paul says that in Romans 9, verse 32. They were given a law of righteousness in which to trust and obey, a law that included the provision of, of forgiveness through sacrifice. But what does Paul say? They did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. But of course it never was. It showed the way of faithfulness, which included loyalty to God as their Lord. But of course a recognition of their own sinfulness and the need for God's grace and his mercy through sacrifice. But notice right here that even in the giving of this law, notice the priority of God himself. It's his covenant first 
the Decalogue that binds his holy people to him. And then it's all the judicial and the civil laws and the statutes about how to live out life as God's holy people, as the community of faith. And only then, after that, comes this business of the cultic and the ceremonial and the worship of the tabernacle. And why is that? Why that order? Well, it's because, to God, obedience is more important than sacrifice. It's very striking that Exodus chapter 32 interrupts the whole of the laying out of the laws about the tabernacle. What happens in Exodus chapter 32? Well, it's the incident of the golden calf, isn't it? And it stops everything to do with the tabernacle. Why? Well, because you can't have worship in the tabernacle, it's any kind of real worship at all, if people's hearts are far away from the Lord, if they're not being obedient. Because obedience is more important than any amount of sacrifice. Now that's the priority that's evident and clear in the law itself. And it's a priority that's clear all the way through Scripture. Do you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 15, the story when Saul can't wait and he offers the sacrifice himself against the law of God and then Samuel comes along. What does Samuel say to him? Does the Lord delight in sacrifices or in people obeying his voice? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Remember Jeremiah in his temple sermon in Jeremiah chapter 7. He says, what was God doing at Sinai? He wasn't commanding about sacrifices. He was commanding about obedience, he said. Well, of course, he was speaking about both of those things, but clearly the priority was obedience. David confesses that so clearly in Psalm 51, doesn't he? It's not burnt offerings that the Lord desires, but what? A broken spirit and a contrite heart. Now, all of these recognize clearly from the law itself these distinctions. Distinctions in the law between the commands to obedient life and the provisions for sacrifices and so on. And they recognize the priorities, the clear priority of the former over the latter. Obedience is better than sacrifice. So both Exodus and Deuteronomy give clear textual witness to this twofold revelation. The unique words of God himself and the mediated words through Moses. And the priority of obedience to these words of God over all outward religious expression you might say, through the sacrifices and the the ceremonies of the tabernacle. Because the moral response of the human heart is more important to God than any amount of cultic sacrifice and outward religion. And both of these, Deuteronomy and Exodus, also bear witness to the clear supremacy of the Decalogue that's set apart from all else. Its priority is shown in all kinds of different ways. First of all, it comes first in the priority list. It comes directly. It's God's voice. It's God's finger. It's uniquely honored. The tablets of stone alone, not the rest of Moses' writings, are placed in the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies. That surely signifies the unrestrictedness of these words of God. They're not like the rest of the things that Moses teaches, which is always for life in the land. Uh, The tabernacle itself is a copy of the eternal uh, court of God in heaven. That's uh, clearly said in Exodus 25 and 26. And so these things are put into the copy of the eternal court of God here on earth. 
the tabernacle and the temple. And that's why these things are the basis of God's eternal judgment. All who sin transgress the law, says John. Sin is lawlessness. Um, The Decalogue has a unique designation. It's actually called, in Deuteronomy 4.13, it's called the covenant. So clearly there is, I would submit, a sound exegetical basis for seeing distinctions within the law, between the Decalogue, uh, the applied precepts of the law, the civil law for the land, if you like, and the cultic practices, the ceremonial things, all to do uh, with the tabernacle. There are clear distinctions and clear priorities. Nevertheless, we have to say also that the law is given as a, a, a unity. All three kinds of these things are woven together in a single uh, historical covenant administration. It's not that we're given uh, neatly three separate, clear, equal categories of law, as though we could uh, easily lay bare. This is the moral law, important for us. This is civil and ceremonial laws that are irrelevant. No, the ceremonial laws themselves often contain things that are clearly moral, as do the civil laws. Often it's really impossible to label them absolutely separately as one thing or another. There are many laws about sexual distinctives, for example, which are clearly moral, but they come as part of the cultic requirements for the tabernacle. So if, if we were trying to rather artificially separate God's laws into, well, these are ones for the spiritual realm, these are moral things that are eternal, but then... These are earthly, historical things that are, that are merely passing. They're not important. Well, if that is what we're trying to do, that, that isn't uh, what the Bible does. Um, so you can see that maybe there is some validity in uh, those who question artificial divisions into, into three completely separate categories of law. But I would argue that When uh, the Reformers and uh, the later Reformers, uh, when they used this language in the Reformed Confessions, I don't think that is at all what they were doing. I think they were simply trying to, with some precision, describe both the unity and the distinctions that the Bible text itself clearly recognizes, we've seen. They were just trying to delineate the fact that the law is both an eternal reality and at the same time it comes to us in Scripture as a historical unity. That's like all divine revelation, uh, when you think about it. Uh, it's always inseparable, isn't it, from the real historical flesh that it comes in, because the eternal God, in revealing himself to us, is reaching into time. He's reaching into history. And he's speaking in a time. And he's acting in time. Uh, and so we must always recognize that there are both of these things. On the one hand, there is... Uh, the unchangeableness of the unchanging God. There is an absolute moral reality. Um, What God requires from man, holiness does not change. Now That's what's revealed in the Decalogue. That's what's expounded to Israel in Exodus and Deuteronomy by, uh, by Moses. That's what's applied and what's appealed to by the prophets. That's what's manifest most fully in the Lord Jesus Christ himself, in his person and in his words. So there is an unchanging moral absolute that comes from the nature of the unchanging God. 
So uh, Christopher Wright, uh, who has written on this, who himself is very critical of the threefold uh, division of the law. Nevertheless, Christopher Wright has to say this. The Decalogue, he says, is the scale of values that reflects God's design for human life, God's priorities for our human attention. And that's the first thing. There is an unchanging God and an unchanging right and wrong. That's the first thing. But we must almost also recognize that God's revelation does always come to us in history. That it is associated with real time and place and specific people. And that means that there will always be real historical flesh, if you like, that surrounds God's revelation that God's revelation wears, if you like. His revelation comes as a unity. It comes in a specific context. It's inseparable from that context. Now that's so, actually, if you think about it, not just for God's law, but for any part of Scripture. When you open uh, one of Paul's letters, say 1 Corinthians, you don't assume that Paul wrote these words directly to us, to my church today in 2011. We need to see God's timeless word uh, in its historical clothes. We need to see it in its original context if we're to understand that timeless message, which does indeed apply to us today. There is one reality, isn't there? God doesn't change. Right and wrong with God will always be right and wrong. But there is different clothing. There is different flesh on God's self-revelation. And that uh, will differ depending on what stage of Uh, the history of redemption that we are reading about in Scripture and what stage of uh, the plan of God's salvation is unfolding. So the Mosaic law, the exposition we have of the Old Testament law under Moses, it is the, the historic expression of God's covenant revelation, including his moral and ethical commands, but it's clothed. It's clothed in the garments appropriate for that people at that time. And that people at that time were a church under age. Uh, They were God's people who were awaiting the fulfillment of the coming of Christ. And they were God's people as a nation state. They were a theocracy under God. And that exactly is the language that uh, these Reformed confessions use. On the back of your sheet I've put um, an extract from... Uh, the 39 Articles, which is very brief, and then from chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, which is, uh, I think, identical really to, in that chapter, to the Baptist Confession as well. Obviously, uh, Presbyterians and Baptists are more long-winded than Anglicans because we take uh, seven sections where they have only one. It just means that we have more to completely ignore today than... uh, uh, Anglicans do in the Church of England. Um, doesn't make you more sound, I'm afraid, having a longer confession for your church. But if we look at these, uh, these uh, uh, articles, I think they're very helpful indeed. I'm going to focus on the Westminster Confession because it is in more detail and in section 3 and 4. But uh, look there at, uh, at what it says. Besides this law, uh, commonly called moral, that's been dealing with the Decalogue, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel, as a church under age, ceremonial laws, containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties. 
Now, do you notice, by the way, that the ceremonial laws, the confession itself says, are partly of worship and partly moral. But all of which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. To them also, as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws, all civil and criminal laws and so on, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging under any now further than the general equity thereof may require. Now, I would submit that those two paragraphs there are simply recognizing both the abiding substance of God's commands and the changing historical clothing appropriate to the age. Section 3 talks about a church under age receiving ceremonial laws which are partly of worship and partly moral. That's articulating, I think, what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, that the Mosaic law functioned in this way as a guardian for Israel to prefigure Christ. And it was to be effectual and real to them so that Israelites, prior to the coming of Christ, might be justified by faith in the Messiah who was to come. But of course, when the fulfillment came, when Christ did come, when the full light of Christ and the revelation of God in him came, then well, the shadows that prefigured him are naturally eclipsed, aren't they? They fade away in the light of Christ himself, so to speak. The word used here of these ceremonial laws, it says they're now abrogated under the New Testament. Uh, that maybe is an unfortunate word, abrogated. I think I would personally prefer the word fulfilled. Um, but what it's really saying is that these prefigurements of the Christ have done their work. Their work is done. The time is finished. They've been overtaken by reality. Likewise, in section 4, it speaks of Israel as a body politic. Well, that's what they were. They were a nation state. And Moses' laws were given to regulate national life, to keep Israel as a nation separate from the nations round about. But of course, when Christ came, when the promise to Abraham at last was fulfilled, that no longer there would be a division of Jew and Gentile, well, civil laws and statute laws to separate God's people as a nation from the rest of the world, were now no longer appropriate. Indeed, they were wholly inappropriate. And so they were superseded, fell away, because God's people are not now bound largely within one nation, but it would encompass all the peoples of this world. They fall away, not obliging under any now, further than the general equity thereof may require. Again, that's just recognizing that, of course, there is abiding moral truth and validity in every one of these civil laws. But it's just that as a whole, as a holistic piece of, of national government, as it were, the time has now passed for that to be uh, the state law of any one nation. But just because the time has passed for these specific manifestations of God's rule in the, in the entity of natural Israel has passed, that doesn't mean that God's abiding moral will has changed, not one bit. Nor does it mean that these laws don't matter anymore or have anything to teach God's people today. Not at all. In fact, that's why uh, sections 5 and 6 of the confession there affirm very clearly that God's will, God's moral commands, that they bind all people forever. And above all, he says, the law is of great use to believers. In fact, in a sense, 
that uh, sometimes called the third use of the law, is the chief purpose of God's law. Because whoever loves God, loves God's commands and loves God's ways. And the obedience of faith is the destiny that all of us are called to. And so God's law is a, is a wonderful help to believers as a rule of life. It, it informs us of God's will. It convicts us of sin. It corrects us when we go wrong. It restrains our sinful nature. It warns us, but also it, it encourages us greatly in, in godly living. It encourages us and teaches us how to live so as to please the Lord, which is the very purpose of our creation and our redemption. It doesn't mean it's a means of justification. Of course not. But it's a way to express the justified and holy life, the life that pleases God, the life that God wants us to have as his people. Well then, how do we find in the Old Testament law then God's requirements and God's teaching for us today? How do we actually in practice approach the Old Testament law? Well, the answer is quite simple really. We approach these texts in the Old Testament in exactly the same way as we approach all of Scripture. Because God speaks both a, a distinct and a specific message in time and history to a particular people and a particular situation. But at the same time, that word is always also a universal, abiding, and eternal word that is as relevant today as when it was first given. So it simply means that we read the Bible in its context, in its literary context, as part of the scriptures that we find it in, in its redemptive history context, where is it in the unfolding plan of God? And of course, in its doctrinal context, if you like, of the whole Bible as part of what the whole Bible says on that particular subject. It just means that we recognize that God's law never comes to us naked, as it were, never abstracted from its real historical context, but it always comes to us clothed and clothed appropriately for the time and the history and the people of its original reception. We can't separate the body of God's moral law, if you like, from the clothes in which it actually is given as real revelation. We can only see the body, the abiding moral truth of God within the full flesh of the, the exposition of the law that is given for that people under Moses. I think, in one sense, the Decalogue is a little bit unique because it does stand rather distinctly and, if you like, almost nakedly um, as a pretty clear sight, if you like, of the unclothed body of God's eternal righteousness. Um, Alec Mateer says of the Decalogue, it is a, a preceptual replica of the divine nature. I think that's quite helpful, really, when you think that under Moses we have in stone a preceptual replica of the divine nature. In the coming of Christ himself, we have in the flesh that divine nature embodied in total clarity. But I agree with John Calvin, who believed that the whole of the Mosaic Law was simply an exposition and an application of the Decalogue, applying it to the life of the people of that day. And if that is true, and I really believe it is true, then it must mean that we, we mustn't restrict the sense of the moral law to only the Decalogue. It means that we see the moral law fully clothed all the way through the Pentateuch in every part of the law of Moses. 
And that means that every part of the Old Testament law is of great use for us as believers today to show us the way of righteousness. Paul says in Ephesians 5, doesn't he? Find out what pleases the Lord. Well, Paul says, these scriptures, including all the law of Moses, are written for you so you can find out exactly that. Through the encouragement of these scriptures, you may have hope. But as we read it, we need to remember that it comes clothed in garments for a body politic and in garments for a people who are under age. And we need to remember that we as the New Testament church are neither of these things today. And that's all that I think that the, the threefold language of the divisions of the law is trying to emphasize. It's just simply trying to say that there are ceremonial things and civil things that have changed, and we need to recognize that. In other words, we just need to recognize our place in the history of salvation is different from the place of the people under Moses. And yet, although we live, as Paul says, in the end of the ages, these things are still written for us and have abiding value for us. So if you don't like that uh, traditional threefold distinction language, well, that's fine. But we still have to read the Old Testament law responsibly. We still have to read it as one abiding eternal revelation of God's ways and his commands for holiness, and yet recognize that it comes to us in these clothes that are going to look different from the appropriate clothing today as we apply that law to ourselves. I just think about that. I think the clothing analogy is, is helpful because clothing always really serves the same basic function, doesn't it? Clothes, well, why do we wear clothes? We wear them to keep warm, certainly if you come from where I come from, or dry. We wear clothes for modesty, we wear clothes so that we have an appropriate appearance, don't we? You don't wear the same clothes to go out to dinner as you wear uh, doing your gardening. But the same basic function is there, isn't it? But clothes also are different depending on our different stage of development in life. Clothing that we wear is different from childhood to adulthood, isn't it? Some clothes, well, we grow out of them and we just replace them with very similar things. So when I was a little boy, I wore trousers and shirts and I'm still wearing trousers and shirts. They're just a different size. But other clothes, of course, as you grow out of, you actually leave them behind, don't you? I'm glad to say I'm not wearing nappies anymore. But it's rather like that with the biblical law, isn't it? You see, some clothing in God's law always looks the same, no matter what age we're in. Take chastity in marriage, for example. From Genesis, right through the law of Moses and the prophets, right to Jesus. There's only one clothing for chastity, and that's monogamy in lifelong marriage. That's the unchanging garment of chastity all the way through the law of God. But then there are others, other pieces of clothing, which do change because they're only appropriate for a certain time. So the dietary laws of the Old Testament, for example, they're very different in Deuteronomy and 1 Corinthians, aren't they? But notice the same basic principle is there whether it's in Deuteronomy or the church in Corinth, all are to eat and drink to the glory of God. But the clothing looks a little different. And part of the privilege of the New Testament church, of living no longer as under age, living in the age of, of adulthood and maturity, is that we have more liberty. That's clear. We're less hemmed in by guardians and by tutors. And yet, what the New Testament teaches us is that along with that goes not license, but far greater responsibility. 
We have more and we know more and so a great deal more is expected of us. Isn't that right? Surely that's the message of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's the more that we internalize God's commands, the more his good and his perfect ways become the warp and woof of our thinking and our minds, the more liberated we are, not the more we ignore the commands of God. Just think about a child growing up. When, uh, when your children are very small, your rules are very firm, aren't they? You say things like this, don't ever, ever go near the road. When they get a little bit older, you say it slightly differently. You say, don't ever cross except at the lollipop man. Maybe they're a bit older still, and you say, always remember the green cross crowed, and only ever cross at the green man. But you don't say to your 25-year-old son or daughter things like that, do you? Now, does that mean that road safety no longer matters? Does that mean that you don't care anymore about them being safe on the road? Of course it doesn't. It just means that the adult clothes of that law can be summed up in a very few words. Be careful. But uh, if, if your 25-year-old son or daughter does go out down the road and they're so busy listening to their iPod and some dreadful noise on it that in fact they don't notice the traffic and they go out into the road and they get knocked down, you go and visit them in hospital, they're not going to say to you, but you didn't specifically tell me I couldn't cross the road there. Well, you might say to them, no, I didn't tell you you can't cross the road there, but for goodness sake, you're 25 and I've been telling you all your life since you were this high to be careful about traffic on the roads. You see, it's a law which at its heart wants to keep your child from harm. It wears different clothes for different stages of your child's life, but it's the same body of truth that you're saying right from the beginning, right to grown-up days, isn't it? And in a way, that's the way it is with God's law in the Bible. It's full of laws to stop us as his people being harmed. Now, often in the New Testament, we just get the brief adult grown-up version of it. Flee idolatry. Flee sexual immorality. But actually, very often, we're then turned back to the Old Testament for graphic lessons about exactly what that means. Isn't that right? So you see, when we read the Old Testament law, we don't read through it trying to chop it all up and divide it into moral and civil and ceremonial only keeping the texts that we think are still important and throwing all the rest of them away. It doesn't work like that. Uh, though these distinctions are worth acknowledging, but it's not so we can chop bits out and say they're no use anymore. Nor do we read the Old Testament law as though they were only pieces of clothing to be discarded completely now as ethically irrelevant. To do that is to completely divorce Moses and Christ. That's what the modern-day Marcionites do. In a sense, that's what dispensational theology does. It's certainly what liberal theology does in a very different way. It throws out all the clothing and says, this is just for an age gone by. No, we don't do that. Nor, though, do we see it only as one unity, as though the body and the clothes were utterly fused and the clothes don't change at all for this new age. That fuses Moses and Christ. That's what uh, the view known as theonomy does. Uh, theonomists want the Mosaic law to be enshrined in statute as the law of the land today. Uh, that's more common in America, really, than, than here. Now, these are all wrong ways for us to approach the law. But rather, like all scripture, we, we approach it as a unity. We take 
seriously its uh, specific context, but also we recognize that it has an abiding word that's valid for all time. In the language of the Westminster Confession, what we're doing is we're looking for the abiding equity therein. In simpler terms of 2 Timothy 3, we're simply looking for what is the teaching and reproving and correcting and instructing material therein. So every command of God's law, like every text of Scripture, is both specific and universal, both given in time but also eternal. Well, one last question. I said the more we internalize God's commands, the more liberty we have to be free from the guardianship and the control of laws and commands. And that is the blessing of the new covenant, isn't it? That God's law would be written on our hearts by the Spirit. Why then do we still need the written law at all if God's law is written on our heart by the Spirit? Don't we now walk by the Spirit? Wasn't Jeremiah right when he said in those days, no one will need a teacher because everyone will know? Isn't that true? Well, the answer to that question is yes and no. Because it's not yet fully true, is it? Jeremiah 31, his prophecy is not yet fully consummated. We are saved, but we're saved in hope. We are not yet fully in possession of new hearts and new bodies. Until then, the New Testament tells me, and indeed my own experience tells me, and so does yours, that we groan, that we struggle, that there's a fierce war raging within us, isn't there, in our flesh, between our new nature in the Holy Spirit, which is in conflict to the flesh that remains in these sinful bodies. Like Paul, I truly do delight in the law of God in my mind because it's possessed by the Holy Spirit. But like Paul also, there's another law. There's a fifth column at work in my members that so often rears its ugly head and threatens to derail me in my life. And so the more I walk in step with the Spirit, yes, the less I need the law of God in an external sense because I want to be holy and I want to do good. But I'm afraid... The truth is that far too often in my life anyway, the flesh rears its head and sin is crouching at my door and my heart is weak and it's deceitful. And I suspect yours is too. And I find myself like, a, like an absent-minded teenager drifting out into the danger of a busy road heading for disaster. And then at that moment, thank God, it is the law of God that is my trusty and faithful friend. The Spirit himself shouts out the warning words of the law and says, Watch out! Remember what you've been taught. Remember what God commands. And he reminds me what God hates and reminds me what God loves. And he restores me gently to that path. Or sometimes he jolts me through correction, reproof, doing what James says to turn a sinner from his way, to save me from death and to cover a multitude of sins. God's law in the hands of God's Spirit thus is such a gracious provision for God's people. And that's why, Jesus says, not one jot or tittle will pass away until the promise is fully realized. And my whole being, body and soul, is made new and made fully holy so that his law truly is part of my innermost being and fills me. And that's why, until that day, friends, the law of God is 
the struggling believer's trusty and gracious friend. Whether for the believer in the old covenant or the believer today in the days of fulfillment. Apostle John says, those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know by the spirit he gives us. The mark, he's saying, of a spirit-filled believer is and always has been a heart's desire for God's holy law. So we're back where we began. Oh, how I love your law, says the psalmist. I will meditate on it all day long. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things out of your law. That's the mark of a real Christian believer. And that's why God's law is a believer's real friend. Thank you very much indeed. I think William has said he's content to take questions. Doctor, thank you very much for your your lecture. Now, I hope I can articulate this well enough. I'm talking about Orthodox Jews. Now, how how are they seen, would you say, um, in in relation to the law, if uh, for whatever reason they go to live in a country where they cannot follow the law? I mean, um, say someone in an Orthodox family um, commits adultery, well, they wouldn't be allowed to stone them, would they, over here? And everyone can't live in Israel. So could you help me about this, please? Thank you. I'm not quite sure I've got the question. Um, are you asking uh, what Orthodox do- Jews ought to do how, with the law? How would... Um, if, if they're in another country where they have to obviously adhere to the, that country's law, um, then how would you see it in relation to orthodoxy uh, and, the, and the laws in Moses' time in relation to punishment? Uh, okay, well, I, I'm not sure I can articulate um, the position of orthodox Judaism, but uh, orthodox Jews today um, misunderstand uh, the law because they, didn't, they do not understand the purpose of the law and the goal of the law and the fulfillment of the law, which is in, in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the primary problem. That's what Paul uh, says is the Jews' problem, isn't it, in, in, uh, in Romans 9 and 10, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, seeking to establish their own. They didn't submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law. Uh, for righteousness to everyone who believes. So that's the fundamental problem. They didn't get what the law was about from the beginning. Um, so they're, they're uh, completely confused about it. There are so many different sects of Orthodox uh, Judaism, it, it, it's very difficult to, to sort of make a clear comment on that. There are some groups in Israel who don't recognize the secular state of Israel at all, and um, there are others who recognize it in part. But... Um, I don't know if I can be much more help than that, really. Uh, thank you very much for that. That was, that was really helpful um, in, in clearing up one or two points in my own mind. Um, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And I think you said that you would preferred if the confessions had used the word fulfill rather than abrogate. Could you just say a little bit more about that and about what, how you understand what Jesus meant when he says fulfill? 
Yeah, I don't object to the word abrogate. I just think it rather sounds a little bit arbitrary, as though um, uh, I think the word fulfill has more of, encompasses more of the inevitability and the rightness of it. In other words, um, uh, uh, all these things have naturally uh, fallen into the background in the fulfillment uh, of, the, of the coming of Christ. But I wouldn't want to quibble about the, uh, about the word. Some people don't like that word. You know, I think we know what it means. The, the Matthew 5.17, Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Um, vast amounts of uh, uh, writing has occurred on that one verse. Um, in relation to the law. But I think what I want to say about that in particular is look at what Jesus actually says. He says, you don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. He's talking there about the whole of the Old Testament. And I think we have to take that passage in its context uh, where Jesus has just said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think I've come to abolish the law, the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he goes on to speak about how their righteousness must exceed uh, the scribes and the Pharisees. His whole context there is of um, mission and uh, evangelism and uh, shining the light of God to the world. Uh, he's drawing there on many Old Testament allusions to the people of God as light, light to the Gentiles, light to the nations. In fact, um, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, uh, where uh, right at the beginning of, uh, of Moses' exposition of the law, he says that very clearly about the purpose of the law. And this is something that people very often, uh, often miss, that the link between holiness and witness. So uh, God says, see, I've taught you statutes and rules. Uh, this is Moses, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you're entering. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. When they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is wise and understanding. What great nation is there that has a God so near it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon them? What he's saying there is, if you live like this, as my people holy to the Lord, the world round about will say, wow. Who are these people and what is their God? We must find out more about him. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is saying exactly the same thing to his, uh, to his disciples that he's calling to himself and saying, don't think God's purpose for his people is now finished. Don't think that whole idea of God having a, a people who would shine his light to the world is now abolished. No, no, no. I've come to fulfill it and you're it. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You who follow me are going to be the ones who bring, who fulfill the, uh, God's calling for his people. Now that's the whole New Testament uh, understanding, isn't it? You are a kingdom of priests to proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into light. It's a restating of what God said at, Co- uh, at Sinai to his covenant people. So I think in Matthew chapter 5 there, Jesus is in his context saying, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. I am the light of the world. But through what I do, you, my people, are still going to have a role as a kingdom of priests. And uh, I think that that's a theme that he takes very very clearly in many places in the New Testament. Um, If you read the later chapters of Isaiah, 
where he's talking about the servant of the Lord being a light to the nations and a covenant to the peoples. And you, he says of his people, in that day will be my witnesses. It's exactly the language he picks up in Acts chapter 1. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. So he's talking there about the, the continuation of the, of the calling of the people of God. And I think that's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And that's why immediately following that is the Sermon on the Mount about the holiness of God's people. But I say to you, but I say to you, uh, your righteousness would exceed everything that's gone before. And the world will then see uh, how great a God we have. So I think most discussion of Matthew 5.17 actually gets a bit sidetracked into this issue of uh, the specifics of, of divisions of the law rather than actually seeing it in context as a, as a, as a bigger picture. Sorry to be a bit dim, but could, could you just uh, further explain um, what you said about what further than the general equity thereof requires action means, please? The general equity is the abiding principle of moral truth uh, within any particular law. What I'm saying is you can't um, simply divide in the text and say there's the eternal bit and there's the passing bit. It comes as a unity. It comes like any text of scripture. It's written for a particular time and people. But nevertheless, it is the abiding, uh, living and abiding word of God. And so to understand it, we have to understand it fully in its context and then, and then apply it today. Now, sometimes that's very easy to do and sometimes it's much more difficult. Um, and sometimes it's, it's extremely difficult. Take in Deuteronomy 22, I'm just looking for the exact verse. Um, yeah, Deuteronomy 22, verse 8. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Now, let's think about different ways of looking at that, uh, that particular law. All right? I could say to myself, well, obviously that is a civil law because that's uh, a civil regulation for building houses in the land of Israel and therefore it has absolutely no relevance to the Christian today. So I cut that out of my Bible and chuck it away. That's taking the view that uh, divorces Moses and Christ and says, well, that's all gone, it doesn't matter. But we can't do that. On the other hand, if I took a theonomist view, I would say, right, every, every house, we must enact a, a statute in this country that every new house must have a parapet around the roof. Well, it's quite easy. We know that that's silly, don't we? Because you're all laughing. What, but what do we do? What is the general equity in this law? Well, we just ask the same sort of basic questions that we ask of any text of Scripture, don't we? Well, what is this actually saying? Why does it say it here? What is the, what is the, uh, the issue at heart? What's, what's this law trying to do? Who is it trying to protect? What's it saying is important? Why is it saying that we must do this specific thing? Now, this is an easy example, isn't it? Because we're, we see it quite clearly. Why would you build a parapet, a wall around your roof? Well, it even tells us so you won't bring blood guilt. It's obvious. You don't want somebody to go up on your roof in the dark and fall over and break their neck. It's a protective thing. It's concerned with protecting human life, isn't it? Um, and what it's saying is, uh, you have a responsibility for your brother by, by building a house. Uh, you don't just say it's, it's enough to say, well, don't be stupid and go falling off roofs. You actually have to do something to try and uh, prevent it because actually your brother might be a bit stupid. Or he might even be drunk sometime and fall off the roof. So it's quite easy for us to see that what this is telling us in general equity terms is, look, 
There is a place, I hate to say this, there is a place for health and safety legislation. (laughs) I can assure you, you don't often hear me saying that. But there is. I tell you, I was just in India recently, and my goodness, you only need a visit to India (laughs) to see that there is a place for health and safety. My host said to me, when health and safety comes to India, (laughs) you'll know the country's finished forever. (laughs) But this tells us, doesn't it, we've got a responsibility for other people, so... If I'm building a house, do I have to put a parapet round? No. But, you know, you make sure, perhaps, that you don't have windows that open too far that people can fall out of and all that sort of thing. There's much to teach us there in that little verse about the responsibility we have for others. And yes, maybe it is a rebuke when we get a bit mad about elfin safety. Maybe it is something that uh, churches have to take seriously. You know, perhaps we do actually have to repair the pathway that... Uh, has got all those cracks in it so that somebody doesn't trip over and smash their head. And yes, it might actually be our fault as well, not just theirs when that happens. So there's a civil law that's very clearly a civil law of Israel. But actually, once you start to turn it around, there's quite a lot there, isn't there? You know, you could build quite a, quite a big corpus of, uh, of uh, jurisprudence out of that and personal responsibility and, uh, and all these sorts of things. On the other hand, there are some laws which are much more tricky. You shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. Now, if you've ever read the commentaries on that, you'll see that there are a thousand and one views on what that is actually all about. And the truth is, either we just have no idea, or it may be uh, that um, there seems to be evidence that uh, this was part of Canaanite fertility rituals, that uh, boiling a kid in its mother's milk was something to do with uh, pagan rites and all the rest of it. Well, if, if that is right, it begins to make you understand a little bit more about what it's saying and, uh, and we can get a sense of, of what it's all about. Um, a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Well... Um, You came to Scotland and you see a lot of men wearing skirts. Is that an abomination to the Lord? You may think it is. (laughs) What's it saying? What's it actually about? What is the purpose of this in its context? What's it trying to to get at? Well, in the context here, we haven't got time to go into it, which leads on to sexual immorality. It's about blurring the distinctions between uh, the genders, between men and women, and mixing things up. Uh, we begin to see that actually these distinctions between the sexes, the appropriate uh, behaviors and appropriate places are actually things that are very important to the Lord. And that law, although it might seem, you know, it makes us laugh, it's very important when you take it along with some of these other things. So we get to the general equity just the same way as if you look in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 5 and you start asking about what Paul is really dealing with there in terms of sexual immorality in the church. How do we apply that today? Well, it's unlikely that somebody is going to have his mother's wife in our church. It's not impossible, but it's unlikely. Do we therefore discard it? No, we don't. We instinctively know that the general equity in that, the teaching in that, Uh, is to be teased out in terms of what Paul is talking about. Why is it wrong for somebody to have his mother's wife? It's worse even than the pagans. Well, it's all about the teaching that's there about marriage and about chastity and uh, about all of these things. So um, it's not as difficult as, as it sounds when you actually start doing it, when you start reading the Bible in its context, sensibly asking the right kind of questions. Um, it suddenly seems to be 
quite contemporary and, uh, and quite easy to apply. But sometimes it's more difficult than others, and you know, sometimes it's more work. The speaker asked us to pray in his opening comments about the situation in the Church of Scotland. Chairman, if you think it's appropriate, do you think the speaker could say a little bit more about that, where the issue stands at the moment, and what resolution are they looking for, so our prayer can be more informed? The situation is that at our General Assembly in May, um, there was a report from a special commission to the General Assembly which had been set up to examine the place of same-sex partnerships in the ministry. That was following the General Assembly of 2009 where um, our Assembly upheld the appointment of a minister called Scott Rennie to a church in Aberdeen and uh, he was... Uh, openly um, uh, declaring himself to be in a homosexual relationship. The Presbytery of Aberdeen uh, had uh, uh, allowed that to go through. A number of evangelical men in the Presbytery had challenged that and brought it all the way to the General Assembly, seeking to, uh, to, to stop it. The General Assembly overturned that and allowed, allowed it to go ahead. Um, but as churches tend to do, then said, of course, we have not created a precedent by this. <laughs> Uh, but we're setting up a theological commission to look into it, which is another way of saying we're trying to fudge it and kick it into the long grass for a little bit longer. So at that time, um, it seemed to us and to many that um, this was very likely an irreversible um, situation, but there was this two-year moratorium on any further uh, appointments, and um, we felt that it was right to... uh, to see what uh, the full consultation would, uh, would bring. And every eldership and every presbytery were consulted, and uh, all of this was brought back in a report in 2011. Um, and what that report did was to say, well, some are for, some are against, and it was very evenly uh, divided. Whereas some years previously, when we had a similar issue on civil partnerships, when it actually went to the grassroots, to the presbyteries, it was booted out by four to one. But within three years, uh, things had shifted very, very greatly so that it was almost even. And in fact, there were a number of different questions, one, one of which was, should people in a, in a same-sex relationship be allowed in, in leadership in the church, uh, ordained to the eldership or ministry? And that was just, just on the conservative side by, by a whisker. But when the question then was, should those who are actually then in civil partnerships be allowed in leadership, there was a majority saying yes. So the implication there is that people see civil partnership really on a par with marriage. Um, so this report came to the, uh, to the Assembly um, wanting to... It set two trajectories before the church, saying that either the, the church must decide uh, a trajectory going back towards the traditional position and therefore outlawing this, or uh, a trajectory towards normalizing same-sex relationships in the ministry. And that was the trajectory chosen by, uh, by the assembly. Another clause that was passed was that um, another theological commission was set up to report back in another two years' time, but was instructed to do its work assuming that trajectory. Um, but another clause was passed saying that there was to be a moratorium on, a continuing moratorium on Um, contentious decisions regarding same-sex relationships in the ministry, but that 
anybody ordained prior to 2009, when the Scott Rennie case was, was, uh, was to be allowed to be inducted or uh, basically accepted as, as fine. Which, of course, is 98% of the, the clergy in the church, because almost everyone had been inducted you know, before 2009. Basically means that if you were ordained after 2009, um, it's not okay to be in a same-sex relationship. But if you were ordained before 2009, it's okay. They were trying to say that was just to protect that particular one person, but the clause was in the plural, and uh, it's been used since then by many to, to justify their, their position. So there are many who are trying to say, and the official position of the church is saying, oh, no decision, no final decision has been made. But in reality, the decision has been made clear that anybody ordained before 2009 can be in a same-sex relationship. And the Theological Commission has been instructed to do its deliberations, uh, assuming the trajectory that the Assembly has, uh, has given. So it seems inconceivable to me and uh, to others that uh, there's going to be any reversal of that. And the reality on the ground is that since May, uh, we just keep hearing of more and more people coming out in same-sex relationships. I heard a, co- a couple of weeks ago, I heard from somebody of 11 uh, they'd heard about just in the last few weeks. And, and, and the problem is that when that happens, there is no possibility of, of discipline. So a young minister who I know well was recently inducted to a charge up in the Highlands, um, discovered within his first few months that his session clerk, that's a sort of senior elder, if you like, and one of his other elders were living together in a same-sex relationship. And um, he managed to... Uh, persuade them to stand down from the eldership, but it began to cause a great scandal in the, in the vicinity and uh, pressure uh, came against them. By and by, this couple started coming back to the church openly and defiantly sitting there together, very much as a couple, saying, there's nothing wrong with this. Um, this poor chap then tried to get his elders to, to, to put them under some degree of discipline, not trying to put them out of the church, but to recognize that they can't be normal members at uh, this time, went to the presbytery and went to others and were basically told, no, there's nothing you can do because the General Assembly has banned any decision-making until 2013. So on the one hand, people are trying to say, well, nothing really has changed, there's still hope. But the actual reality is that everything has changed and um, it's now impossible, really, to hold a a, a consistent position. Um, so somebody said to me, well, you're not compromised because you can continue to preach the gospel. But that minister said to me, well, how am I not compromised? How can I stand in a pulpit and preach the gospel and effectively be saying, well, I'm preaching this, but just ignore it because sin is actually all right and uh, you know, listen to what I say, but don't do what I say. I mean, it's, it's, you're not preaching the gospel, are you, if you're saying, don't listen to what I'm saying, it doesn't really matter. And that's the, that's the terrible dilemma that, that people are facing. So a number of people have had to resign their positions because of that. Some churches, like ourselves, are, are, are now forced to, to break fellowship completely with the, with the denomination. And what that will lead to for us in our situation is that uh, either we will be able to uh, negotiate um, uh, peaceable uh, separation or else um, things will become difficult and 
I'll be thrown out. So that's the, that's, that's the way it is, really. <laughs> but I don't... The, 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 there are evangelical brothers who believe that um, things will change in two years. I think there are a lot who are kind of, as far as I can see, may, uh, there's a lot of wishful thinking in that. There are some who are in very difficult positions and cannot, uh, and are very much of one mind uh, with us, but are just not in a position yet to be able to carry their congregation persuasively. Um, some of them feel they need longer and feel they have got another couple of years before the absolute crunch comes to try and uh, get their congregation clear. A number of them have said, I will have to, in conscience, leave the Church of Scotland in 2013 if this finally goes, but I want to try and uh, use the next two years to to, uh, seek to get the congregation clear on it. But um, everybody's in such a different position, it's very, very difficult. And I I wouldn't want to criticise the... particular actions that others are taking um, uh, you know I think people have to do what what they feel is right and best in their situation some are faced with very hard situations for some that is they, they've had to resign and step down for others they feel they must stay on and, and, uh, uh, and, and seek to lead the people where there are congregations that are as a whole very clear I think increasing that's going to be a going to mean a sort of realigning but but uh, it's a big unknown, and I don't know, and that's why we need your prayers. I think the biggest prayer that I would ask for our own congregation is that um, that we would really be united. That the, the tragedy in these things is if congregations themselves split apart. Um, as, as far as I can see, the, the church is primarily the local church, and breaching the fellowship there is far, far more serious than a realigning of of a denominational thing, which is. Quite a secondary issue as far as I can see. But um, where you have people with strong and long emotional ties to uh, other churches and the denomination, it's very, very difficult. I've been in the Church of Scotland all my life. My father was uh, ordained minister for 60 years in the Church of Scotland. His brother was an ordained minister for 55 years in the Church of Scotland. You know, we've got quite a lot of history. It's not an easy thing um, for any of us, but... um, that's the way it is, and it's it's happening, isn't it, across across the Western world? This is not a. Some of our folk think this is a problem of the Church of Scotland. <laughs> this is a problem of Western Christendom, isn't it? It's it's all the mainline established denominations are facing or have faced this, and uh, it's going to come to everybody, and uh, even independent churches. Uh, sometimes think they're insulated from this sort of thing, but they're not going to be. You know, it's it's the great idol of our time, isn't it? I was preaching somewhere recently on. I was asked to speak on Daniel chapter three and the, uh, the 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 great statue that Nebuchadnezzar set up in the plains of Jura. And I mean, what is the great statue that's set up in the plains of Jura today that we all have to bow down to? It is homosexual rights and homosexual relationships, isn't it? It's the great thing. And there weren't very many of the Hebrews who wouldn't bow down. But the point is, the ones who really had the influence on society are the ones who didn't bow down and ended up in the fiery furnace. But the influence came from the fiery furnace. And uh, I guess uh, for many, 
Many of us in this in this country, it's such an extraordinary thing, isn't it? Especially for older generations to think that any of this could be possible. But we're just reverting to the mean, aren't we? We're reverting to normality because the history of the church throughout the ages and, and the church throughout the world today is not happy liberty and a Christianized society like we've enjoyed for a couple of hundred years. It's not that, is it? That's a blip. That's an abnormality. We're going back to what is much more normal for the church, which is living under the very present threat of the beast and the false prophet. And uh, we shouldn't be surprised. I'm sure he'd want me to thank Dr. Philip for his talk tonight, and I'm sure he's opened many, many windows on the questions he's talked about 